We're in the series, The First Letter to Timothy. This is part 10 in the series, The Times in Which We Live. My text is 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8. My sources include Philip Graham Ryken's Reformed Expository Commentary from Timothy, Michael Bentley's Passing on the Truth from 1 Timothy, John R.W. Stott, The Message of 1 Timothy from The Bible Speaks Today, William Hendrickson's New Testament Commentary on Timothy, and Stephen Cole's Studies in Timothy. Let's stand for the reading of God's Holy Word from 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. This is the Word of God. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith, And follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for what you will teach us through it. So help us to understand it and apply it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Did you know that false teaching is dangerous and destructive? In his essay, Sin Sick, theologian Stanley Hauerwas explores the idea of authority using a medical analogy. If a medical student told his advisor, I'm really not into anatomy this year. I'm really into relating, so I think I'll skip anatomy class to focus on people. He says the medical school would reply, who do you think you are, kid? You're going to take anatomy, and if you don't like it, that's tough. Hauerwas delivers the crucial point by saying this. Now, what that shows is that people believe incompetent physicians can hurt them. Therefore, people expect medical schools to hold their students responsible for the kind of training that is necessary to be competent physicians. On the other hand, few people believe an incompetent minister can damage their salvation. The year 2000 comes to mind because for 2000 years, the church has said that bad teaching is more deadly than bad surgery. Do you believe that? Obviously, we don't want our doctors to be just popular and relatable. How many times have you said, boy, his bedside manner is rough. But wouldn't you rather have him be competent? We want them to practice truthfully and correctly, don't we? 
We need to be just as discerning with the care of our souls as we are with the care of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 10.12 is a verse that a lot of people don't really notice because of 1 Corinthians 10.13. So if you'll look quickly at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Do you know verse 13? Verse 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tried beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. A lot of people know that verse, but a lot of people don't know the previous verse, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. You know, you might think like Peter, we talked about Peter a week or so ago, who said to Jesus, I will never fall away. I will never fall away from you, Lord. I will never deny you, Lord. And yet, Peter did exactly that. Thankfully, he came back, but many do not. Sometime before Paul wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there had been a prophecy about people falling away during the latter days. We, we know that because the first words in the text say, the Spirit clearly says in the last days, in the latter days. And he could have been referring to his own prophecy about false teachers who would come in like wolves and devour the sheep. And that's from Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, where Paul was talking to the church at Ephesus, and he said, in kind of a farewell address, be careful, be protective of the church, because in the latter days, these wolves will come in and devour the sheep. It was a warning about false teachings. It could also have been a prophecy through the mouth of the Lord Jesus. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24 is one of the most important chapters about the latter days, about eschatology. And Jesus says this in those verses, uh, starting at verse 10 of Matthew 24. At that time, Jesus says, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. I always think about my professor uh, who actually visited a a liberal church one time. And uh, after hearing the sermon by the pastor, which was not biblical at all, my professor walked out the door. And, you know, as people are coming out the door, they shake and say, thank you for the message, so forth. Um, And he shocked the pastor when he said, He shook his hand and leaned over and said, you're a false prophet. Well, he got him very upset. Uh, The man started yelling at him, telling him to leave and and so forth. But uh, he got his point across, and there are false prophets in the world. And yes, even in the church. Two lessons today. Let's look at two lessons. The first of which is the problems associated with the times in which we live. The problems associated with the times in which we live. I hope you heard what Paul said in the very first verse of the text. The Spirit clearly says that in the later times, some will abandon the faith. I've lived long enough to see a number of people that I knew do exactly that. More than I'd like to talk about. To see people who appeared to love Jesus, and appeared is the operative word, turn their backs and say, eh, 
I, I don't think so. It's, it's just too hard. To see that is heartbreaking. Paul understood that as well as anyone. Have you ever read the name Demas in Scripture? D-E-M-A-S. Demas. Well, in Philemon, Demas is mentioned by Paul as a fellow worker in the ministry in verse 24. In Colossians, he is mentioned along with Luke in Colossians 4 verse 14. In Acts, or actually, I'm sorry, in Timothy, in the second letter, letter of Timothy, he is mentioned as an apostate. What is, what is an apostate? An apostate is one who was a believer, supposedly, and then denies the faith. He's not a person who was a believer and then lost his salvation, because we don't believe that. He was one who went along for the ride and seemed to be a believer, said all the right things, but really, truly was not a believer. There are those. Second Timothy 4 verse 9 says, And do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. You know, I read a study recently that said that, quote, young Americans are dropping out of religion at an alarming rate of five to six times the historic rate. Five to six times the historic rate. Thirty to forty percent of young Americans, thirty to forty percent of young Americans have no religion today versus five to ten percent a generation ago. So it's a changing world. What's, what's going on? Paul mentions, of all things, demons. What do, you, what do you think about that? What do you think about demons? C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, the Screwtape Letters, one of his famous books, he writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. See the two extremes? So, According to the scriptures, demonic influence is very real. And if you struggle with that, then I'm sure you also struggle with supernaturalism in general. There's a whole other dimension, friends, that we don't see, but it's there. There's a whole other dimension that's very real, a spiritual dimension. I believe there are angels in this place today because we're gathered here in the name of Jesus. Now, we can't see those angels but I believe they're here. Usually, you know, you and I tend to focus on the natural world so much that we don't think about the other world that's there. So turn with me to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Timothy was pastoring the church at Ephesus. I think it's crucial that we understand what the scripture says. And so look with me in the last chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. I'll read from verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and listen to this, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I think on the one hand, we don't want to go to the extreme of saying there's a demon in every, every corner, but we also don't want to go to the other extreme and say, oh, I don't believe in that anymore. I think it's, you know, that was way back when. Not according to the scriptures. So the problems that Timothy was facing in the church at Ephesus was that there were these teachers, men in the church, whom demonic forces were using. We are sometimes caught off guard when the enemy comes from within the church. We think the enemy is out there. 
Not in here. But scripture is clear that dynamic spiritual leadership from within the church will oftentimes rise up to lead God's people astray. And what Paul is saying is don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if demonic forces are behind those who seek to lead you astray. If you've ever been ripped off by a con artist, and maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but if you've ever been ripped off by a con artist before, then you know that that person did not walk up to you and just introduce themselves and say, Hello, I'm here to steal your money. They don't do that. What do they do? Well, they earn your trust, but all along with the intent to help himself or herself to your money. And that is what was happening in Ephesus. And believe it or not, it happens today in churches. Through the years, I have seen legalism up close and personal. And it's a horrible, horrible thing. It actually succeeds in robbing believers of their joy, and sometimes it shipwrecks followers of Christ forever. G.K. Chesterton was an English essayist and biographer, and he was so right when he said this quote, Madmen are always serious. They go mad from a lack of humor. You think, how does that happen? How do good people get led astray? Well, a group of believers discover something that helps them grow in their faith. Maybe they discover a a forgotten doctrine. Uh, Maybe they take up a political cause. Maybe they follow a, a new method for child rearing. I mean, who knows? All of which can be a very good thing. But then they decide that this good thing is so good, so helpful in their own lives, it ought to be mandatory in your life as well. Before you know it, these people assume that anyone who doesn't do things the way they do it are less spiritual people than they are. Which is exactly what the false teachers in Ephesus were doing. Okay, what specifically were these false teachers teaching? They were implying that real Christians have very little to do with this world. In other words, there's the whole thing of come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And, and yes, the scripture does say that. But these false teachers were saying that all bodily urges must be resisted. Because there is something inherently sinful about the body. They were saying if you were truly spiritual, you wouldn't need physical companionship. So you should be celibate and you should never get married. Basically, they said, sex is for you lesser mortals. That is not what Scripture teaches, though. The Bible has a lot to say about the misuse of sex. And we've talked about some of that in this series. That outside of marriage, sex is wrong. The Scriptures are very clear on that. Marriage for a man and a woman is not only a gift from God, but it has been ordained by God. Look with me in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, the back of the New Testament, Hebrews 13, verse 4. The scripture says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all of the sexually immoral. So these false teachers also said that people should abstain from certain foods. Paul said that all that was nonsense, that God had created these foods to be received with 
thanksgiving, according to verse 3 of our text. And if you remember, Peter felt that way back in the book of Acts, that God had spoken to him, revealing to him in Acts chapter 10. Look at Acts 10 for a moment, if you would. Doing a little Bible drill today as we go from book to book. But Acts chapter 10, verse 15, the story of Peter and Cornelius. You know, there were certain animals that Jewish people in the Old Covenant were not allowed to kill and eat. They were called unclean animals. And so now we come to the New Covenant, and Peter has not gotten that yet. Okay, so Acts 10, 15, um, basically the Lord appeared to Peter and said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he says in verse 14, Surely not, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And verse 15 says, The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So, on the one hand, Paul is saying, you can be a vegetarian if you would like. That's fine, but don't blame God for that. Don't blame God for your decision to be a vegetarian. And that's what was going on here in Timothy's day. John Stott explains it this way. He says, quote, from the beginning of church history, some teachers have argued that sex and hunger are themselves unclean appetites. That the body itself is a nasty encumbrance, if not actually vile. And that the only way to holiness is abstinence. The voluntary renunciation of sex and marriage, and since eating cannot be given up altogether, then at least the renunciation of meat. Donna and I went to the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, to the Qumran community. The Qumran community was where the Essenes wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were godly people, but they refused to marry which is not really scriptural. Catholic priests are forbidden to marry, which I don't see in scripture. Orthodox priests refuse to eat meat during Lent. I I don't see that in scripture. So these are added on things. So don't lose your joy is the message that Timothy is hearing from Paul over things that don't really count. And don't let someone else make your life miserable because you don't measure up to their standards. So the legalist claims... That his standard or her standard is the Bible, when in reality, his or her standard is more often the Bible plus their thinking. C.S. Lewis, another great quote here. Heresy is the truth taken too far. Heresy is the truth taken too far. And it's sad, but unfortunately, human beings, especially Christian human beings, have an amazing tendency to be imbalanced. Imbalanced. It's one of the greatest things my mentor taught me. Avoid extremes. Run from extremes. Run from extremists. Balance is a key to the Christian life. And like most cult groups, legalists are usually not a group of people who have it all wrong. They are often people who have taken one truth to the exclusion of all other truths, or who have taken one truth so far down the road that it's gone way beyond its destination. So... The first lesson is the problems associated with the times in which we live. The second lesson is the perspective needed in the times in which we live. What kind of perspective do we need? We need the perspective that Bo mentioned earlier. Grace. We need grace. Grace is the secret to joy in this world. 
The two words, grace and joy, go together because they have the same root word in Greek. When you realize that everything that God does in and through you is by his grace, rather than you working for it and earning it, that brings joy. That just brings joy. Grace is the secret of joy. Gratitude is a response of God's saving grace. What God has made is good, but yes, there is a danger of my corrupting that good thing that God has made. One way to test this is to ask this question. Can I thank God for what I'm doing right now without being ashamed about it? Can I thank God for what I'm doing right now, whatever you're doing, wherever you are this week? Can you thank God for what you're doing right now? To avoid falling away, we must regularly expose ourselves to the word of God in all of its truth. Then we must persevere in the truth of God with thankful hearts, with grateful hearts. Even in times of trial, we need to affirm God's goodness and thank him for his many blessings. And I know that is hard. I know there are some of you in this place today that have suffered so great. And yet the only key to joy again is a spirit of gratitude and gratefulness to God. We are to receive God's gifts, his many gifts, with grateful hearts. The book of James comes right after the book of Hebrews. And James chapter 1 is a verse that you should remember. James 1 verse 17 Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. For example, when we eat our food, we say grace. Many of you do. You say grace before the meal, a practice that maybe is what the Apostle Paul is alluding to. Why? Because according to verse 5, it, he says, food is to be consecrated by the word of God in prayer. So we give thanks to God for the provision of the food that he's provided for us. I mentioned earlier G.K. Chesterton. I want you to hear what G.K. Chesterton wrote about grace. He says, you say grace before your meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and before the opera. And grace before the concert and pantomime. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I dip the pen in the ink. His point? God is to be praised for everything. I love Christian music and I love Toby Mac's song, Everything. And I love what he says in the song. He says, God, I see you in everything. I look for you in everything. I see you in the sunrise. I see you in that person that I know. I see you in everything. I, I, I fully believe that God gave us this world and gave us many things in this world as a gift. I'm grateful for the gift of athletics. You know, it, it was so fun to watch our basketball team play basketball. You know why? Because these young guys can really play. And, and I remember a time when I could play. And it's great to watch and to see our guys playing. We, we demolished our friends at First Baptist. It, it, was, it was incredible. In the semifinals, we, we won 71 to 47. We, we beat them off the court. It was so fun. Not just because of them, but because our guys were playing beautifully. 
And then we had to play another game after that, and we got beat. 56-52. We were, we were in it until we just kind of ran out of gas. But I want to tell you, our guys played so great. And, and one runner-up for the league. And uh, after starting slow, that was a really great thing to see. I got to play nine holes of golf with one of our deacons on Friday afternoon. And after having surgery and recovery, I, I was so missing that. And it's just something incredible about sports and athletics, at least in my opinion, that enables you to kind of get away from all of it, all of the things that you do working, and focus on just trying to hit that ball, which is hard. It's called common grace. God in His grace has given us things like that to enjoy. Extremism can get you into real trouble. Balance is a word you need to always remember. If someone's saying you ought to be like me in some way, you better think about that. And legalism is not the only extreme. You know, there's the other side of the coin, which is licentiousness. Legalism says you can't do this. Licentiousness says you can do whatever you want. And both are extremes that are really the same kind of thing. You need to avoid both of those extremes. They're really two sides of the same coin. So what's the antidote? What's the perspective that we need to live with? Verse 7, he says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value. There is value in physical training. But godliness has value for all things. So Paul takes us in his imagination to the gym and takes you in your imagination to the gym. Lots of us have excuses for why we don't train ourselves physically and take care of ourselves physically. I, I get it. But at the other end of the spectrum are, are those who are so into fitness that they neglect everything else, including the most important things, which is spiritual exercise. So how much time, as we come to a close today, how much time are you putting into spiritual exercise toward godliness? How much time in your life are you taking for spiritual training and godliness training? And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. It's in your bulletin underneath the outline. Let's read it out loud together. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Who will reach that goal? Not those who have lived a good life, but those who have surrendered their life into the hands of God while they're living on this earth. The only way to achieve godliness in the life to come is to experience the value of it. In this life. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the wonderful gifts that you've given to us. That come to us as a blessing. A gift from above. Father, thank you for the many gifts that you've given to us today. Thank you for the gift of worship. The gift of friendship. The gift of support and fellowship in Christ. I ask you, Lord, to help us today that we might keep our eyes upon you, that we might glorify you with our lives, the way we live, that you might be pleased with what we do in our lives each day. Lord, help us to live lives of wisdom, lives that glorify you because we seek to honor you. And I thank you for the grace, Lord, that you've given to us, the mercy you've shown our way. 
Help us to remember that, Lord, and to be grateful today for this day that you have made. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.